Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. I hope you're doing well. I hope things are going okay at your house. Today, I want to talk to you and offer you some help for fears. And in particular, we're going to be talking about fears of animals and bugs and insects. Super common for our kids to have those struggles. And if they have anxiety or OCD, sometimes it's at another level becomes a really big deal. And so I have invited Dawn Hebner onto the show. She is, you probably have seen her books, if not own some of them. She is the author of What to Do When Your Brain Gets Stuck and What to Do When You Worry Too Much, along with lots of other books that I love and that are on my shelf. I have had her on the podcast before, and I invited her back because she has a new series out, which I really love. These are very cool. They're called Dr. Dawn's mini books about mighty fears. It's very cute. And there are four that have come out, which I'll talk about in a minute. But today I invited her on to talk about fears of animals, bugs, insects, that kind of thing. And I think you'll find this really helpful because we have a really good discussion that goes way beyond that. We talk about our parental role and how to kind of prime ourselves to work on our kids' anxiety around animals or bugs. A lot of times we don't start with ourselves and it's a good place to start. And then we move into kind of the things that we can do to help our kids, how to do that. And we also talk about some pitfalls to watch for as far as what not to do and what to do. So I think you'll find our conversation full of good information. But before we get started, I do want to say thank you to NoCD. This episode is sponsored by NoCD and NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., and you can schedule a free 15-minute consultation to just see if NoCD is the right fit for you and your child. Just go to treatmyocd.com. That is treatmyocd.com, and I will leave a link in the show notes. They are a godsend because in my AT parenting community, where I give ongoing support to parents who are raising kids with anxiety or OCD, I've seen a dramatic shift in the last, I would say, 12 to 18 months of people not being able to find help, and now people getting connected to OCD therapists because of all the good work that NoCD is doing to provide that virtual OCD therapy to many families like myself who don't have access to either a therapist locally. Um, There's all these barriers. And so NoCD is doing a wonderful thing for the OCD community and for parents like myself and for those of you out there who are looking for treatment and don't know where to look. So anyway. Moving forward from there, I want to jump into my conversation with Dawn. I hope that you find it helpful. I know that you will. And stay tuned because we will have more episodes with Dawn talking about some of her other books. And I'll go into that at the end. But you can check out her books on Amazon. I do have a link in the show notes. And the one that we're going to be talking about today is Facing Mighty Fears About Animals. But our discussion goes much more in depth than just her book. And so you're going to walk away with really a good foundation of where to start when you're trying to tackle your child's fears. All right, here we go. Well, I want to welcome Dawn Hebner to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. 
So today we're going to talk about phobias and in particular, we're talking about fears of animals, fears of bugs and insects. And you're a great person to talk to because you're my go-to person for books to help kids with anxiety. And so I want to just pick your brain and have a discussion about kids who do have these, you know, sometimes extreme fears and sometimes mild fears. Can you just start with explaining to parents how they would recognize a fear of animals or insects in their children? Yeah, I think that's a really good place to start because the fear of animals is really common and it makes sense. It makes sense to be apprehensive around something that could hurt you, like a bee that might sting you or a dog that might be unpredictable, might jump on you, might even nip you, right? And so we actually want children to feel some sense of caution uh, around unfamiliar animals. It becomes a problematic fear when it starts to get in the way. So when the fear is grossly out of proportion to the actual danger that that insect or that animal poses, and when a child begins to kind of organize themselves around their fear, so, you know, they avoid places or situations where they might encounter their animal, or they need a ton of reassurance before moving into situations, things of that sort. So if parents are finding that their children are afraid to the extent that the fear is really getting in the way, that's the time that it makes sense to begin to do something about it. Yeah. And I like the differentiation because I think you sometimes have parents will say, well, you know, isn't this typical behavior? And, and it is, but like you said, to like what extent and what level, you know, I don't like snakes and I don't like bees, you know, and I'm not working on it, you know, because I'm not avoiding things. I go out in the desert and walk every day, you know, so it's not impeding my daily life, but my son's afraid of bees. Actually have to have him read your book. And he's thinking about it all the time. You know, right. do we want to go out into the backyard during the summer because that's the time where bees are going to be there. Right. Yes. Yeah. So for phobias in general, it doesn't really matter how common the fear is. What matters more is the extent to which it's interfering for any particular child. Yeah. And I like that clarification because mm-hmm. I do feel like sometimes People normalize it and say, well, aren't, I'll see this also in the OCD world. Well, isn't it normal to wash your hands? Yes, but not, you know, excessively all day long. So it's that degree. So if you have a child who has a phobia, and even if we want to move away from those clinical terms, just a fear of an animal or an insect, what are some of the first steps that a parent can do? I think it makes sense to talk to the child about their fear. Sometimes kids are well aware that they have a fear that's out of proportion to the danger or that they're afraid in a way that their peers aren't. Some children are really aware of that and others are not. They either deny or minimize, sometimes out of embarrassment, sometimes out of the sense that if they admit to the fear, they're going to have to do something about it. So they might say, you know, I'm not afraid of dogs. I just don't like them. Or I'm not afraid of bees. I just don't want to go outside. You know, so they deny. So it's important for parents to start out just talking about fears or phobias. The very first thing you want to do is normalize. And I always think it's useful to talk to children some about what's going on within their brains and within their bodies that leads to what they experience. So 
even for really young kids, we can talk about there's a special alarm system in the brain that all of us have. That system is there to alert us to possible danger. And it's a good thing we have that. But possible danger is different from actual danger. And so sometimes that alarm system makes false alarms. It it tells us to be scared about something that really isn't necessarily dangerous to us. So I think you want to start out with a basic kind of normalizing explanation. And then I think the second piece is to make clear that there's something that we can do about that. You know, we don't have to just live with it. There's a way that we can teach our brain to be more accurate about the kinds of things that it's alerting us about and then go on to explain something about exposure which is is what the whole sort of treatment or management of phobias is about. Yeah. And it is true, I think, you know, that a lot of times our kids will will almost defensively say, you know, I'm not afraid of that or even make excuses. It's boring to go swimming or, you know, and so you can be squirreled and think, well, maybe, you know, maybe it is fine. And so I do like that normalization piece to to open that up. And then just the that just general education on how our brain operates and how we're having sometimes these false alarms and overprotective, you know, as you're talking, it also made me think about parents and myself included how sometimes we have our own anxiety, our own phobias. And, and so I wonder, and your book doesn't dive into this, obviously, because it's a parental aspect, but I just thought it was kind of an interesting side note that and I'll see this, I've seen this in my own behavior and I'll see this when I'm just walking, you know, that there's a dog coming by, you know, and I'm walking a lot these days. And so, and I'll see a parent preemptively pick up their child, you know, like protectively, or like, I have to watch my big reactions around bees <laughs> because uh-huh. I don't like a bee landing near me either, but I have a little person watching who has, you know, an extreme reaction to it. Right. Right. So, yes, I think that parents are always sending signals about how safe their children are. And and when a parent acts afraid of something, that telegraphs to a child, there really is something dangerous here. And sometimes it's because the parent themselves is also uncomfortable around that particular animal. Often it's less that and more that the child's anxiety triggers the parent's anxiety because it's really hard to see your child distressed, right? So let's say a child's afraid of spiders and a parent might not be particularly afraid of spiders themselves, but the child gets so panicky and the parent gets triggered by the child's panic and becomes intent on quieting the anxiety down in a way that kind of sends the message to the child that I don't think you can tolerate this or there's something terrible going on that I'm going to protect you from, right? So it is important for parents to learn how to keep themselves calm because part of what they're needing to do is to send the signal to their child that there's no actual danger here. But an important caveat is that it's not useful for a parent to just say to a child, there's nothing to worry about. You know, that kind of dismissiveness about what the child is feeling is never helpful. Yeah, I was thinking that, again, as you're talking, I was thinking about the, I kind of call it seesaw parenting. You know, you have like different Mm -hmm. extremes and, you know, that you do have 
the parent who is empathetic and is sensitive themselves and can feel their child's distress and doesn't want their child to be in distress. And so that was a good point that you brought up that even if they're not having the anxiety about, you know, the animal or insect, just the distress of seeing your child uncomfortable can provoke us to be accommodating and and try to like preemptively protect our kids. But yes, we have the opposite end of the spectrum too, as we always do with everything where we don't want to be dismissive and authoritative, like just do it or sit with the bees or go, you know, like just kind of jump into the deep end metaphorically. Right. So Dr. Ellie Leibowitz, who founded the SPACE program that some of your listeners might be familiar with, this is a program for that teaches parents of anxious children how to not accommodate their children's anxiety. And he talks about being supportive of children. And he has a very particular definition of support, which means to acknowledge and empathize with the anxiety, but also express confidence in a child's ability to move into the situation or to manage. And we really want to do both of those things, you know, to say to our kids, I know this is scary, or it looks like you had an alarm go off in your brain. That's hard, right? So to do that acknowledgement and and empathizing piece, and also to say, we're going to practice right now, or I know you can stick with this, or I know you can be brave or whatever, do the, you know, acknowledgement and encouragement piece. Yeah. And this is a good place to start because we want to start start with us as parents, where our mindset is at, what our approaches are before we dive into just how you approach a phobia or a fear in general. And I do have an episode with Ellie Leibowitz and I'll link that in the show notes as far as just exploring his approach in the space program, because I think that you want to get into that mindset of validating their fears so they feel heard while kind of emulating that belief like I believe in you. You can handle the discomfort. I mean, that's just how we live at my house too. Right. I think one of the things that's hugely important for parents and ultimately children to come to an understanding of is that anxiety is uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. You know, the the sensation of anxiety is hugely uncomfortable. And any of us who have, have any experience with it, and that's most of us, know that when you feel anxious, you really want to just not feel anxious anymore. And often the quickest way to accomplish that is to accommodate the anxiety, you know, to avoid or to move away from whatever it is that's making you anxious. So having this change in mindset, this, this reframing where you're reminding yourself that the anxiety is uncomfortable, but it isn't dangerous, helps both parents and children to kind of keep themselves in the moment and to learn how to ride out the discomfort of anxiety rather than being immediately reactive to it. Yeah. And so we have to kind of get ourselves on board, but then moving to the next step, we have to get our kids on board. So I wonder if parents are listening to this and they're saying, yeah, 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 I get it you know, and I'm not accommodating it. I want them to work on it, but how on earth am I going to get my child near a dog or a bee or a snake or whatever it is that's really impeding, you know, their happiness? Right. So can we talk about exposure? Yes. And I was thinking about your acronym in your book, Dr. Don's book is facing mighty fears about animals and it's coming out Thursday. Uh, It's coming out Thursday. So the 22nd of April. So it is already out because we are like in the future (laughs) time traveling. So that is cool. And I'll leave links in the show notes, but I know you have an acronym at WIN 
I know the first one is about engaging the child. I couldn't think what that was. It's willing. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yep. So willing, interested, near is the okay. acronym, right? So to start with willing, so first, these books are for six to 10-year-olds. And so the explanations are all given in ways that that kids that age can easily relate to. And the idea is to try to empower kids so they understand what's going on um, within their own brains and bodies, and they can kind of t- help to take charge of learning to manage the fear in a different way. So willing essentially means to recognize that while you might not want to do the activities that you need to do to desensitize, in this case, to the animal that you're afraid of, it's helpful to to be willing. So there's a difference between wanting and willing, right? And willing essentially means that the outcome is important enough to me that I'm willing to put up with some discomfort in order to do it. Right. And there are all kinds of things that we are willing to do, even though we're not especially like thrilled about doing them. Right. So we're willing to take a shower if we're a child because we have to, or to brush our teeth, or to do our homework, or to do a chore around the house, or to practice, you know, either an instrument or a sport. We're willing to do things because we're trying to achieve a certain goal. And even though we might not want to, we still do those things. Right. And so that's the first step, helping kids to access their motivation so that it becomes a little bit easier for them to do what comes next, which are the harder parts of this. Yeah. And some parents might wonder how to motivate their kids to get to that point of willing. Because I know for for us as adults, I can see that I want to travel. And so I need to, you know, get over my fear of flying. You know, it's a means to an end. I think sometimes it's harder to get kids to see those connections. Yeah. Although sometimes I think kids are well aware of it. It's just, it feels kind of daunting to them. But, you know, I think many kids would be able to say that I want to be able to have a sleepover with my friend, but my friend has dogs, so I don't go to their house. Or I want to be able to play outside or go to a particular park, but I don't do that because there might be bees there. Or I want to be able to get my sports equipment out of the garage, but I don't go in the garage because there are spiders. Or, you know, I think many kids are aware of that. They often make excuses then, you know, saying, well, it doesn't matter that much to me, or my mom can go into the garage for me, or whatever. But I think many kids do understand that there are distinct advantages to getting over the fear, whatever it is. And so, you know, you kind of begin there. Um, I would not recommend that parents lead with what are essentially bribes, you know, offering some major reward if the child gets over their fear. That's not a particularly effective way to address this. You might build in some rewards for children practicing the things that need to be practiced. That's okay. But what you're rewarding is cooperation with the program rather than whether or not a child actually feels afraid. Yeah, and it's good distinction because I think sometimes parents do, they get confused with bravery points or bravery incentives versus bribing, you know, and I know as far as my own kids and the kids I've worked with, just to move that dial, it's that first step is that awareness of willingness of like, this is how it's really impacting your life. Like you weren't able to do this when we did that, or you weren't able to go here and this is how it can grow. Because I think sometimes kids need it laid out for them. 
my kids do, you know, like this is where it can go. And then for us, you know, the bravery points are important and it's about effort, but those skills have to be in place first. And I think that's a piece that parents miss is if I just, you know, have a carrot and I like wiggle a carrot in front of them, then they're going to go sit next to bees or whatever. And it's building those skills and then celebrating that bravery of taking small steps. We'll talk about the exposure aspect of it, but taking those small steps towards the discomfort that they might be feeling. Right. And I think as a part of that, it's important for kids to understand that being uncomfortable is the point, right? Right. Like the way you make progress is when you keep yourself in those uncomfortable situations. So I think that before you embark on exposure, it's important to explain exposure in a way that kids can relate to. My favorite metaphor is an often used one, which is about getting used to the cold water in a pool, right? And I like it both because virtually all children have the experience of jumping into a pool and feeling cold and staying in the water. And after a while, the water feels fine. And it's not as if the temperature of the water's changed, it's that you've gotten used to it, you've desensitized, so you don't feel it anymore. So kids can relate to that um, because they've experienced it. And the other reason I love that metaphor is that there are two ways to get into a pool. So the first is to jump in and get used to the water all at once. And the second is to go in in a step-by-step way. And when we're doing exposure, we can do either of those, the kind of plunge in, do it all at once method, or the step-by-step. Typically, kids choose step-by-step, and that's totally fine. But as you're talking to a child about this, you would talk about the importance of medium-sized steps, right? So going back to the pool, if you're putting a toe into the pool and you never progress beyond that, you're not going to get used to the water. If you take teeny, teeny, tiny baby steps, it's going to take a really super long time, right? If someone shoves you into the pool, that's not going to go particularly well. So the goal is to take medium-sized steps, take them progressively, take them electively, right? So we want kids to have kind of the scheme of this in mind to be participating in thinking of what what are the steps, what are the right size steps, neither too little nor too big, and then beginning to to do that. And and as you're saying, you certainly can can offer rewards for doing the practicing, you know, for taking the steps, but it's absolutely not about whether or not the child felt afraid because again, like being afraid is the point. You know, when when kids come to me and they they say, I did such and such and I wasn't even scared, you know, I'm congratulating them, but I'm I'm thinking internally, oh shoot, that means the step wasn't big enough. You know, mm-hmm. the point is is to feel afraid and to do it anyway. Yeah. And communicate that to the child. And even right. for parents listening, that the point is the discomfort, you know, that right. So if you see your child looking fearful and and being brave and sitting through an exposure, being around a dog or a bee, that's success. You know, that's absolutely not that I was like relaxed when I was sitting there with potential bees coming, but I was able to do it anyway. Right. Because that's how things change at a brain level, right? So if you think back to the idea that you have a an alarm center in your brain and it is sending false alarms the way to correct that is to be in the situation and have those alarms going off but to see that nothing bad happens 
And that's how your brain, nothing, nothing bad other than feeling anxious, but you know, nothing catastrophic happens. And that's the way that your brain gets rewired. So the most significant and important and lasting change comes from taking these medium-sized steps and staying in the situation and having your brain see that even though you were afraid, you weren't in danger. And to have that happen over and over and over again is what leads to lasting change. And their life skills. So I think, you know, that this approach that you teach in all your books is building resiliency in any adaptability in any situation. Sometimes I think parents think, well, is it bad enough that I need to do exposures or is it bad enough that I need to read a book on it? And to me, or they don't have a diagnosis. And to me, it's like, these are good human skills, you know, learning how to walk towards discomfort. It's helped me in my life, you know, sit with a mm-hmm. lot of discomfort. It's helped my kids learn how to sit with discomfort in all aspects. So these are skills that are teach resiliency and adaptability in, in any capacity. Absolutely. And when it comes to anxiety, often there's kind of a moving target, you know, the the focus of the anxiety keeps changing. But anytime you do exposure to something, it teaches a child to, so you're exposing not only to whatever a child is afraid of at the moment, like dogs or bees or spiders or whatever, you're also exposing to the sensation of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so anytime you do exposure, it helps broadly with the way a child is, is managing anxiety. It's helping a child kind of change their relationship with their own anxiety so that they aren't as reactive to it, aren't as much a victim to their anxiety. And in that way, it's really powerful. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a beautiful skill for for all of us to have. All right. So going back to your acronym in, in your book, facing mighty fears about animals. So we've done the wit, the W for willingness. willing. Right. Let's go to the I. Yep. So I is interested. So this step is starting to learn about the animal that you're afraid of. And this is really an exposure to begin to have a child talk about the animal, look at pictures of it, learn facts about it. Often when kids are really afraid of a particular kind of animal, they don't they don't want to be talking about it or even looking p- at pictures of it. They don't want anything that reminds them of the animal because that triggers their anxiety, right? So this is kind of the, a low-level exposure. And it also gives a child more factual information, right? So some kids go running away indiscriminately from all flying insects, right? Well, really, there's only a small subset of flying insects that have any ability to sting a person. And there's even a smaller subset that has the inclination to sting. You know, most most stinging insects, we'll just call them bees broadly, but most stinging insects, the last thing they want to do is sting a person, either because they're intent on you know, collecting pollen or doing their other work or because stinging kills them. So, you know, for kids to begin to get some information about their animal, whether that's dogs or spiders or bees or snakes or whatever it is, is an important first step. Yeah. And I I love how you incorporate that in your book. It's actually really funny. Like all the facts, all of your series, you do that. We'll go over, you have quite a few different ones in this series on um, mighty fears. And the facts that you found for each different thing was like, fascinating. I found it really interesting. So even reading the book is a beginning exposure, really. It's it's doing all of the 
you know, it's the educational piece, but it's also, I thought, a little bit of an exposure. It is, absolutely. So one of the features of these books is something called fun facts. So they're just these little asides, which you just described, where it's kind of factoids, curious, unusual, quirky things about whatever the subject of the book is. So in this case, there are, are, are facts about dogs, about bees, about spiders, about snakes, and they're absolutely a form of exposure. So they keep kids engaged because they're really interesting and unusual facts, but also their exposure. Yeah, I thought they were really creative and interesting exposure and facts. And so you have Facing Mighty Fears about animals, and then you have two others. So one is on throw up. Three others. So Facing Mighty Fears about throwing up, Facing Mighty Fears about health for broader health concerns, and Facing Mighty Fears about trying new things. Which really covers the gamut. (laughs) So I was like, with these, it's really good. Yeah. Well, there are more coming. There are three more coming in the next year. No way. That's amazing. Because I think these are really, uh, I know we're not talking about this in general, but I'm just going to go on a tangent. They're just really good go-to books for parents and therapists because they do everything that I would do in a therapy office, but in a fun, engaging way with the child. Yeah. And they're really usable by kids and parents on their own. So, um, you know, even children who are not in therapy can benefit from these books. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we got the interest part and then the N. N is near. So this is the next level of exposure for kids to begin to tolerate being around the animal that they fear or in the places where they might encounter the animal. So there's an important distinction to be made about exposure, and that is that it's important to make sure that you're exposing a child to the right thing. And that sounds obvious, but it isn't always intuitive, right? So if a child is afraid of bee stings, for example, we're not exposing them to bee stings. Like we don't, we're not trying to have a child get stung on purpose. We're not even necessarily always exposing them to bees. We're exposing them to the places where bees might be, right? And and also to to being around bees themselves. Or for dogs, we're not, we, we don't want a child to actually get bitten, but we're exposing them to being around dogs in increasingly difficult ways. So it's important for exposure to start with small steps and to build progressively. So you might start with just, you know, as we talked about already, looking at pictures of something and talking about about it, and then move to watching from afar, and then eventually getting closer and closer. And there are ways to make this creative and fun. So, you know, it doesn't need to be torturous for the child and parents. So I often recommend things like uh, creating a scavenger hunt. So, you know, if you were going to create a dog scavenger hunt, you might send a child out looking for, you know, a dog with curly hair and a dog with a fancy collar and a dog with oversized ears and, you know, kind of things that make it more interesting to be looking. Or you can have a child go on a bee photo safari where they're taking pictures of the bees. So there are ways to incorporate games and art and creative kinds of things as you increasingly have a child learn to be near, that's the N of when, to be near to the animal that they're afraid of. Yeah. And I think being creative and fun and making it engaging is so key so that kids can have some fun with it, even though it's scary that they can, you know, 
they're more willing to do it if you're doing something creative. Right. And it's both that they're more willing to do it and also that we're trying to engage both curiosity and humor because those are different sort of paths or parts of the brain from fear. So we want it to be eventually that a child sees, let's say a dog, for example, and they feel curious or they remember something goofy that, you know, they did around a dog as part of their exposure. So it's it's helping to change the association for them rather than them just being immediately flooded with an overwhelming sense of of fear around that animal. Yeah. And I know with my kids, I mean, particularly my son has a lot of phobic behavior for him. I'm just thinking about, we went to the Grand Canyon this past summer and he has a major phobia around heights or like falling. Mm -hmm. It was actually very specific. It was like falling into the Grand Canyon and he had nightmares Mm -hmm. about it for like a year before. And so we're walking around the Grand Canyon and it was like, just encouraging him to, we were on a path that was like, I don't know, like probably 20 feet away from the mm-hmm. the edge. We were way far into the path and mm-hmm. he didn't want to walk on the left side. He wanted to walk on the right side. Mm-hmm. So it was like, for me, it was like just encouraging him to do that one little simple thing, like walking on the left. But if he thought we were just going to build up to him getting close to the edge, he wouldn't even be willing to do that one little step. Mm-hmm. And so I noticed for my kids, like I have to get them really tunnel vision, just do this one little thing or like, let's just mm-hmm. make a, you know, a, you know, a, a cool game about walking on the edge. And by the end of that trip, it was like one little step at a time. I don't know if you've been to the Grand Canyon, but there's like a mm-hmm. really scary, I forgot what it's called. Maybe Angel's Cliff. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's like, and there's a store, which is a very cool store, but like right on the cliff. And mm-hmm. he didn't want to even go in it. He was sitting on a bench and then I said, well, you can sit on the bench and we're just going to go in. You know, there's cool things I'm going to buy for your sisters, but you don't have to. It's fine. And he actually got to the point eventually where he was like making me uncomfortable where he was walking down this little Mm -hmm. path on the edge. And so it's so fascinating how quickly sometimes they can acclimate to that discomfort if they think it's just one step at a time. Right. Right. And, you know, as you're telling the story, it reminds me of something really important, which is that as kids are doing exposure, it undermines the usefulness of exposure to add reassurances about the bad thing not happening, right? So as your son is walking, let's say on the right rather than the left, is it the right was the more dangerous side? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So as he's walking on the, not more dangerous, but scarier to him, right? So as he's walking on the right, you don't want to be saying, you're not going to fall, you're not going to fall, you're not going to fall, because that sort of undermines the usefulness, right? But oftentimes kids do need you to not be actively projecting ahead to, you know, you'll do this and then you'll be able to get even closer to the edge, right? Because as you said, that's too overwhelming, right? So getting kind of tunnel visioned or just focusing on this is the step we're on. We're not needing to look ahead about other steps. Let's just do this. That is important to do to keep kids focused just on the current step that they're on. Some kids like to know the plan right? Like to know what's coming, but it's important to give reminders about we're just doing one step at a time. We're going to do that one step repeatedly and to not, not be in a hurry to accelerate it. That piece about not being in a hurry is important. You know, parents often feel kind of impatient about let's just progress through these steps, right? And that's not particularly useful, nor is it useful to go too slowly. So there's sort of an art to figuring out how to pace this 
sometimes parents and kids make the mistake of thinking that you only move forward when a child feels quote unquote ready. That's not necessarily right because they might not ever really feel ready and you're wanting them to do the step when they're feeling at least a little bit unready. Because as we talked about earlier, that's sort of the point to be uncomfortable and do it anyway. So, you know, it's important to kind of play around a little bit with what's the right pace of moving through a progression. Yeah. And finding what's right for your child. And I mean, for us, you know, the bravery points move the dial because after a while, Mm -hmm. when I see that you're pretty status quo, you can still do that and, you know, we'll celebrate that, but you're not earning bravery points because now the next right. step would be really brave. I do want to circle back to something that you just brought up, which I think is really important. I'm glad you brought this up because I think this gets missed a lot with parents is that reassurance component because it's so intuitive to say, look, you're safe. It's not biting you or, you know, look, you're fine. Just sit there. You're fine. Like that is probably what most parents would intuitively say. And so Mm. then sometimes I notice that parents, at least in my community, get tripped up because then they think they can't say anything. And so I think we can celebrate, but you can say, look how you're tolerating this discomfort. You know, look Mm. how you're moving towards your fears. You're so brave. So it's not that we can't cheerlead, but we have to be careful what we're cheerleading about. And I think that is a really good point that you brought up. Right. So In the midst of the exposure, when the child is still feeling apprehensive, we don't want to add reassurance about the bad thing not happening. I think after the fact, it's okay to say something, you know, to ask your child a question like, so was your worry right about that? Or did that turn out to be a false alarm? You know, to just sort of underline the fact that nothing bad actually happened. But while a child is in it, yeah, I think that it's important to kind of acknowledge or validate or empathize with what your child is doing. So to talk about you're being really brave, or you're really showing your worry that it's not the boss of this, or good for you for writing this out, because we don't want kids to feel alone with what they're feeling. We want to, we want to be saying, you know, I see you, I'm proud of you, you're doing it. Yeah, I think all of that's really important. Yeah. So I love your books, because I feel like they really walk parents through how to do this step-by-step. And what's even better is they're educating the child. And I really feel like empowering the child is the ultimate goal. You know, like that's, that's what I hope for my kids that when I'm not there and they're in school and there's maybe something new that pops up that scares them, they can come home and say, mom, you know, I was nervous about that. And, you know, I kind of sat through my discomfort and I walked a little bit closer instead of moving away from it. And They can follow the steps that you kind of outline very clearly and kid-friendly in your books so they can do this and incorporate it into their lifestyle. Yes. Thank you. So for those of you that are interested, I definitely recommend, this is just something that can be on a bookshelf for any child between the ages of six and 10, because, you know, all children face fears at some time and your uh, Mighty Fear series really covers pretty much most of them. It sounds like there's going to be more coming out. Um, Stay tuned for that. So facing mighty fears about animals. I will leave a link in the show notes. I'm also going to leave a link just to your mini series in general so that people can check out the other ones that you have coming out. And with this one, you also have the other three coming out as well. Yes. So three are coming out on April 22nd, facing mighty fears about animals, facing mighty fears about trying new things, facing mighty fears about throwing up and facing mighty fears about health, uh, facing mighty fears about health. The throwing up one is not coming out till June. I'm sorry. I said that wrong. And that's um, going to so be three. And really then the fourth. 
and then more in the future. Okay. And I definitely already talked about this, but I will definitely have you back on and we will dive deep into each one of those. I'm especially excited to talk to you about the emetophobia, the fear of throw up one, because I know that in my audience, that's a very common struggle, but they're all good. So we'll have you back if you're coming on and we can dive deep on the other topics as well. Great. I'll look forward to it. All right. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Bye. Well, I hope that you found it helpful. She writes just such helpful books. If you click her name in the show notes, I do actually link her author page because she has written so many books to help anxious kids on lots of different themes. And I recommend so many different books of hers that you definitely want to check that out. But the one that we were talking about today is Facing Mighty Fears About Animals. And this is the mini book series. It's called Mini Books About Mighty Fears. I have links in the show notes. She also wrote one on throwing up. She wrote one on health. And she wrote one on trying new things. Um, I've got them right here. So you can probably hear me shuffling through reading those. I'm going to have her back on to talk about trying new things. And then the the fear of throw up comes out in June, which I know some of you are going to be like, oh my gosh, there's no children's books that I know of that tackle emetophobia, the fear of throwing up. So this is going to be gold. It is for ages six to 10. So if they're not in that range, this wouldn't be appropriate, but she does have a lot of other books that you definitely want to check out. And I hope that you're enjoying the podcast in general. You know, I like to take time out of my life to provide you with this good free resource so that you can get some insight, guidance, and suggestions, not only from myself, but from experts like Don Hebner. And so I hope that you find that helpful. If you do, don't forget to hit a star on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you consume your podcasts. I appreciate that. If you have a few extra seconds, don't forget to write a review and I might be reading one of them to show my gratitude. There are quite a few actually new ones to read. So I'm going to just start with the most recent one that I haven't read and I'll read the rest of them as I progress each week. So I want to read very helpful podcast for parents of kids with OCD from Redheaded Mom of Four. I found Natasha's YouTube channel first, then the podcast. Both are excellent free resources for parents looking to help their kids through OCD and or anxiety. I have a son with OCD, and although we pay big bucks for professional therapists for him, it is extremely helpful to have additional resources to become more knowledgeable and skilled at helping him and our family manage. And I, I'm glad to hear that because that is this is supposed to be an added bonus, a supplement to boost your education. And sometimes it's really the only resource that parents have, but I love when they are having really good direct help. And this is just adding to that. That's the most ideal. So thank you so much, Redheaded Mama, for, for taking the time to leave a review. I greatly appreciate that. If you are looking for advice, I don't read reviews that are looking for advice, just so that you know, because then this will turn into an advice show. And I don't want to get into that. But you can always go to join my Facebook group. I have a free public one. I also have a private one that is for paid members of the AT Parenting community, but I have a very large free public one and you can check out the link in the show notes or go onto Facebook. It is AT Parenting Anxious Kids. There is over 29,000 parents over there. And so you can check that out and you can post your questions in there and parents help each other and you'll get tons of advice and support in that Facebook group. So if you want some suggestions, you can feel free to go there. And I hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do. And I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com.